0: Welcome to the Thriving Artists Podcast, a feature of the Clark Eulings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Eulings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding to working artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Devere, your host. This episode, I'd like to give a shout-out to our Australian listeners. We appreciate you tuning into the Thriving Artists Podcast and recognize that you're known for fantastic artists like Fiona Margaret Hall and Ben Quilty. Despite having 200% more education, less than one-third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. This gets solved with entrepreneurial training and opportunities to collaborate and organize. That's why if you're a working artist, you need to join the Artist Federation. You can do this at theartistfederation.com. There's no charge to register, and exciting new opportunities are coming. Register and meet other working artists who are forming local chapters to influence their markets, to exchange business skills and professional support, and to determine their own professional destinies. It's starts by creating an account and saying hello at theartistfederation.com. Now our guest today is Seth Hopkins. Seth is the executive director of the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, one of the largest museums in Georgia. It's the only Western art museum in the southeastern United States. Seth has been involved with the museum since 2000. Welcome to the show, Seth.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Now, Seth, can you take a minute to just tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and your work?
1: Well, I uh, originally was a journalist and uh, then uh, worked in telecommunications, and I wound up working for a gentleman who was a major collector of Western art. He walked in my office one day and said, "Uh, we're selling this telecommunications company. We're going to build a Western art museum, and I want you to run it. And when I came back to consciousness, I said, "Uh, I don't know anything about art, and I can't spell museum. And he said, well, it's going to take three years to build the building, Uh, We trust you, and uh, we have confidence in your ability to learn a new field, so get out there and learn it. And so over those three years, I did a lot of traveling, going to artist studios and galleries and museum shows and visiting museums and taking coursework and doing the academic side as well. I eventually got a master's degree from the University of Oklahoma in museum studies with an emphasis on Western art history and Western history. And by the time we opened the museum three years later, I at least felt conversant, but it's been a never-ending learning curve and uh, one I've really enjoyed being on.
0: Now, in addition to it being a a new museum, it has kind of a unique mission uh, and goal. I know that you focus on Western art and you also focus on living artists. Can you clarify, what is the the museum's mission? What is its goal?
1: Well, the uh, original founding of the museum um, by the anonymous local founders here in Cartersville, Georgia, was to provide an opportunity for young people, meaning school-age kids, but also young adults and uh, people, uh, young professionals, to have access to an arts facility. Our founders feel like the first 40 years of their life were almost wasted because they didn't have art in their life and it so has enriched the latter part of their life that they wanted people to have access to something they didn't have as young people growing up in North Georgia. They also wanted it to be an economic development driver, and they wanted it to be a source of employment for a number of people in the community, so have a number of economic impacts. They also had mainly collected living artists' work and liked meeting the artists, knowing they were supporting their livelihood, putting their kids through college, you know, whatever it might be. And the museum continued on that track when it opened, and we have continued to collect mainly the work of living artists, or at least of the contemporary period, say the last 50 years or so, and to present that to an audience in the Southeast who does not have access regularly to a Western museum. And so the people who are interested in the West, the history of the West, the art
0: of the West, can come get their fix. As we say, you can explore the West without leaving the South. Now, that, that particular point is interesting. I mean, the website makes the point that Booth is a Western art museum in the South. Why is that particularly significant?
1: Well, I think there's a great affinity uh, between the South and the West as distinct regions. Uh, I think they have a lot in common in terms of their rugged individualism, their self-determination, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, many of the most famous people who did things in the West like Doc Holliday and John Fremont and many, many others, were from the South. People who came home to a devastated uh, Civil War landscape in the South wound up going West and forging a new identity, so many Western families have their roots in the South. It also um, is an opportunity to have an art form that is unique, that can be approachable to young people and children. Uh, You know, kids don't necessarily play cowboys and Indians anymore. But art that depicts um, the Western history, the Western landscape, the wildlife of the West in a representational manner is something that the average person can walk in off the street and not have to be coached on how to react or what it's about or, or how to enjoy it. Uh, it's just very natural. And so it was a subject matter that the uh, founders of the museum thought was a good way to engage people in art uh, I euphemistically call it art for guys who don't like art.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, I I lived all over the United States growing up, but I lived half of that time, half my life in the South. And we always knew that the West was something else. You know, when you said the West, it didn't mean the South, but it meant something, as you said, the South has an affinity for. Um, there's this association with cowboys and Indians and the great frontier, et cetera. And you know, the website talks about Western art, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't equate Western art to cowboy art. So, and and this is kind of a, a controversial topic these days. What is Western art? What is realist art? What is representational art? So I want to ask you that question in this form. What, what is Western art if you had to nail it down? Well, to us, it's
1: about the subject
0: of the art. And, um, It is cowboys, it's
1: Indians, it's the wildlife, it's the landscape, it's the idea, it's the myth of the West, the idea of the West, even. The closest thing there is to a textbook on Western art is the Getzman book called West of the Imagination. And it very much delves into the idea and the mythos of the West more than the physical region itself, such that uh, frontier art, which might be a better term for some of the earlier art that might have been created in the Ohio River Valley or in western Georgia or Alabama when that was the frontier that includes Indians in it or the discovery of new lands um, you know is within the western tradition and could be considered under the umbrella of Western art the other end of the spectrum that gets a little more ticklish is people who want to know where is the urban West in Western art you know where are depictions of the cities in the West or the problems of the West and those kinds of things And generally, Western art, as we deal with it, and the other museums that call themselves Western art museums in the country, haven't dealt very much with that yet. Uh, It's coming, and you see it in small doses, but it's much more about the mythos, the idea, the nostalgia, the things that come to mind when you think about cowboy movies and Western postcards and tremendous vistas and national parks and so on, not to say that it's all traditional art, because there very much is a contemporary bent to it. And every ism you ever studied in art history can be seen in Western art. So it's not staid and stodgy, not all of it, certainly. And uh, there's a tremendous variety of of depictions of the West. But it's more of an idea than a place.
0: Now, you know, Booth's collection includes abstract uh, or modern styles of art as well. Do those uh, challenge what Western subject matter is. Yes, and that's what I was trying to get
1: to a little bit in the previous comment is that, um, you know, you will find pieces that are Fauvist, Cubist, um, Abstract, not all the way to totally non-representational usually. There's usually some elements uh, in them, but they are not your grandfather's Western art. Um, they may have social commentary in them about what we're doing to the West environmentally or have a conservation under message uh, that's within the art and are addressing some of the uh, social issues or uh, environmental issues that are going on in the west, so it it's not just uh, Remington Russell, Bierstad, Moran, you know perhaps the four best known artists who dealt with the American West as a subject. Uh, you know there's a whole um, generation of artists who have said, you know, that's been done. Let's do something a little different in terms of interpreting the idea." Uh, both the place and the West of the imagination.
0: Well, you know, Seth, my heroes have always been Cubist cowboys. So uh, <laughs> I'm interested in <laughs> some of, I, I want to see the fauvist fove, the Western art. I, I'm excited about this.
1: Well, uh, Google uh, William Penhollow Henderson, Maynard Dixon, um, many of the Taos artists from the Taos Society of Artists who are being influenced by both Russian and European art trends in the 20s and 30s, and
0: you will see some Cubist cowboys. All right, so let me ask you then one more question, you know, to to stir up this honeypot of genre, medium, and, and style, if you will. So would you say that, and maybe this is a non sequitur, but would you say that Booth straddles the realism, abstraction, divide fairly neatly, or does it fall somewhere within that ongoing dialectic or, or polemic, if you will?
1: Well, we we have very few pieces that are very far towards abstraction or non-representational. Uh, most of our art is, is representational with a twist, um, the ones that are in the more contemporary end of the collection. And many of those are done by Native American artists. And they have been loosened up to do that type of imagery since 1962 when the Institute of American Indian Arts was founded in Santa Fe, New Mexico, with money from the Rockefellers and support from the federal government, and they started bringing Native American young artists, uh, originally they were high school-age kids, uh, it's now a, an accredited college, but they were bringing these uh, high school-age kids in the 60s off the reservation that had art talent, plunking them down in the school in Santa Fe, and saying, there are no rules, you can do whatever you want, you know, we'd like for you to explore your own heritage artistically. And so they, you know, in a vacuum kind of were looking to New York and what was going on, and they were doing things like Rauschenberg and Johns and Pollock and Motherwell and those kinds of things. And the imagery is very, very different from what had been classified by non-natives as traditional Indian art. It was very flat, very pastel you know, very uh, you know what the white people call traditional, and um, this created a whole new really genre of, within Western art. That then freed up uh, non-native artists to follow in that uh, regard and to do
0: things very different than had been done in Western art before. Mm, I I can't imagine a frontier Pollock, but I I will try. I will I will look for this online. <laughs>
1: pollock is the frontier. Pollock was born in Cody, Wyoming. And many of his paintings are believed to be influenced by Western elements like native sand painting. His drip method uh, has been likened to sand painting uh, by native peoples. His um, paintings have been likened to stampedes on the prairie, and uh, that are uh, buffalo uh, herds uh, moving across the prairie at high speed. That uh, perhaps those are some of the influences in some of his really big canvases.
0: Well, wow, I never knew that. I, I think sometimes art gets sort of sanitized in the, the gallery presentation in the New York art market. And I, um, I'm i not aware of, of those connections. So that, that's pretty fascinating.
1: We have a major painting hanging in the Booth Museum by an artist named Harry Jackson, not to be confused with Jackson Pollock, but they were very good friends. Clem Greenberg said that Harry Jackson would be the next Jackson Pollock. He has a painting in our museum uh, of a stampede that is relatively realistic, it's stylized, but it's still fairly realistic. It is dedicated to the memory of his friend Jackson Pollock because he saw within Pollock's work this stampede painting that he did as an homage to Pollock.
0: Well, you know, speaking of things that draw attention, you know, word of mouth, um, the name of the artist, the reference to other artists, I want to ask you just a couple more questions about sort of the museum's presentation itself before we sort of, you know, the show has an educational uh, sort of uh, direction to it and purpose. And and I know that our working artists listening want to hear more of what you have to say about how the museum works with living artists. But I I do want to dig in because you have also an Ansel Adams exhibit. We do. uh, Which feels like it would be a slam dunk success. Um, And I wonder how you balance sort of riskier shows with shows that make economic sense or that are just obvious. You know, of course, if you put Ansel Adams on a, on a sign, people are going to come for that reason alone. The two uh, biggest temporary exhibitions uh, in terms of numbers the
1: museum has ever hosted were uh, two major Ansel Adams exhibitions that we did, uh, one around 2010-11 and one just uh, this past year. And uh, those two shows moved the meter more than anything we've ever done. They also uh, gave rise to a subgroup within our membership that's the Booth Photography Guild, uh, essentially a high level camera club, is one of the fastest growing parts of our membership. And those two factors have led us to embrace photography in a big way. Uh, We now have a photography curator. Uh, We have cannibalized some gallery space uh, to create a permanent photography exhibition space. Uh, Over the next couple of years, that's going to host a number of temporary exhibitions, including the Ansel show that's up right now, Um, but that will give way to shows by other artists, and uh, one of those we're very excited about is an artist named Zoe Ernest. Uh, She's a young, 30-something Native American photographer who is shooting Curtis-esque, meaning uh, Edward S. Curtis, the famous anthropological photographer type imagery, but in a very contemporary way. She also was out in the middle of the big pipeline dispute uh, at the reservation in North Dakota over the uh, last uh, spring and shot some very provocative images of the protests going on there, one of which was submitted uh, for consideration for a Pulitzer. And so that's an artist, you know, relatively few people have ever heard of. And it's going to be a fairly groundbreaking show. It's going to be the first uh, museum show of her work. And um, so, you know, that's the bookend to Ansel Adams in terms of breaking completely new ground.
0: Now, you also have um, the Sweet Tea 5 exhibit uh, currently at the Booth Museum, and, it, and it's Western art curated from Southern collections, and it includes Native and women artists. And I wonder, how intentional is it to have artists with diverse backgrounds, or does it really matter with regard to the actual outcome or public interaction with the art? Uh, We think it matters tremendously, and um, we are
1: uniquely positioned to be able to do that being a museum that's collecting living artists and within the contemporary period. The earlier museums are a bit hamstrung with their collections in that Native artists, uh, artists of color, uh, women artists were not generally accepted or collected uh, in the previous you know, 100 years prior to the contemporary period. So there's very few artists' work you can go get, even if you wanted to, to bring in that diversity of artists. Uh, you know, We're not better, we're just newer and uh, are reaping the benefits of a much more diverse crop of artists who are producing Western imagery today than ever before. And so we are able to have significant representations by African American artists, Chinese artists, women artists, Native artists that help build the story of the American West in a much more complete way than some other collections are able to do, or without bringing in supplementary material besides fine art. And we embrace that in a big way in our permanent collection as well as in the uh, Sweet T5 exhibition that you allude to. Uh, If I may, uh, let me tell you a little bit about the Sweet Tea series. Oh, yeah, please, definitely. That's a uh, series that we started in 2005, uh, not long after we opened the museum. And we kept uh, finding people coming to the museum who collected Western art, living in the Atlanta area or Nashville or the Carolinas or North Florida or Alabama. And they thought they were the only crazy person in the South who liked this material, Uh, as did our founder, uh, in the beginning, because he didn't know anybody else uh, in his peer group, uh, among friends and family. People would come to his home or his office and say, you know, what is this all about? Or worse yet, they would ignore it altogether, which is the absolute worst thing for a collector is somebody to not notice their their stuff. And so we said, uh, you know, we really need to figure out a way to introduce these people to each other so that they have a mutual support society and people they can Talk to about their passion or m- more often their obsession uh, with collecting and their interest in Western art, Western history, and traveling in the West uh, to follow those pursuits. So one of the tactics was to create this exhibition, Western Art South of the Sweet Tea Line, and that was our founding curator James Burns's way of whimsically describing the area from which the art was drawn. And originally, there was an emphasis on museums uh, in the South that had some Western art, but hardly ever showed them. They didn't have enough to create any context with them. You might have two or three fantastic pieces that never see the light of day. We borrowed a lot of those. We borrowed from some of these private collectors. And at the opening and related events throughout the exhibition, they started meeting each other and having conversations like, what artists are you following? Uh, Who are the new up-and-coming artists you're looking at? Where do you eat when you go to Jackson Hole? Where do you stay when you go to Scottsdale? What galleries do you like in Santa Fe? And it created a kind of club effect uh, around these folks at the museum. And that became the basis of our circle-level membership at the museum. And, you know, five to ten years later, many of these people look around and say, the Smiths, the Joneses, the Davises, they're some of my best friends I have today. I've met them through the museum, through Western art, through mutual conversations, events at the museum, travel that we've done together, going to each other's houses and ooing and aahing over each other's collections, we have uh, formed very tight bonds, and they've done that through the museum. Now, when we did the first exhibition, everybody said, we should do this every year. And the staff said, no way. Uh, it's way too much work. Uh, the show normally encompasses around 100 pieces, normally from 40 or 50 collections, 80 or 90 artists represented, And, you know, every one of those loans is several conversations, a couple of trips with the art truck. And uh, so we said, well, we can't do it every year. really don't want to do it every other year. Let's do it every three years. And so it's become our triennale or triennial signature exhibition. And uh, we're on our fifth one, so we're 15 years in. And uh, we continue to uncover folks on a regular basis in the South who collect major Western art. And we introduce them to the existing club, ask them to borrow their art, and continue to produce this exhibition schedule that um, has some amazing art in it. Uh, If you uh, went to any major city in the West and did an exhibition like this, I don't know that you would find much better stuff than we're able to find. And it's pretty amazing when you find things in small towns in Alabama and Georgia, the Carolinas, North Florida – that are priceless works of western art it's uh, pretty amazing that they're there hiding in plain sight
0: so i'm going to ask you one last question about this topic uh because i got to uh audience bear with me and then we will (laughs) switch to uh talking about working artists so would you say that you market the museum seth as a niche museum or or not
1: well, we have tried to um, get a little bit broader than just purely the Western art aficionado. And certainly anybody who likes art in general, I think, can find something in the museum they like because it's not all just realistic picture postcard, you know, what you might initially think of when you think Western American art. And our branding message has shifted from what we used to use, which was explore the West without leaving the South, to see America's story. And part of that also encompasses two other collecting areas we have at the museum besides just Western art. One of those is a one-page signed letter with a photograph of every president of the United States, and that's its own separate gallery, which was also a collecting area of our anonymous founder. And we have a Civil War gallery where we show artwork depicting the battles in the Civil War. Most of those are also by living artists who are still making a living interpreting the Civil War. And so we tell the story of the U.S. presidents and the Civil War to give context to the Western experience and to understand how important the role of the presidency and the outcome of the Civil War was in the development of the West at various stages. So it's, it's really trying to tell a, a little bit more complete American
0: history story with those three uh, disparate collect- seemingly disparate collections. If you've been finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. A portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. Share this commitment with us now at ClarkHulingsFund.org, click the donate button at the top, and give to the show. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now Seth um, that was a fascinating survey of the museum the museum's mission and kind of a tour of what's happening in the world of Western art I'd like to move to our segment on working artists and ask you a couple of preliminary questions uh, before we really dig into it so uh, tell us you know about who you collaborate with in your day-to-day artists other curators administrators who's your primary you know contact all of those, um, uh, as well as gallery owners
1: and uh, people who run galleries. Um, you know, Unlike uh, some museums, uh, the gallery owners are our friends. Uh, we do buy art from galleries. We don't try to bypass them necessarily to go to artists. Certainly, we buy direct from artists occasionally uh, when we meet them uh, through other means, but uh, our gallery friends are important to us in turning us on to new artists, uh, introducing us to collectors uh, in our region, and uh, we take that uh, as a serious um, and important relationship. But on a day-to-day basis, I'm talking directly to working artists, other curators, uh, gallery owners, uh, collectors, uh, probably equal amount of time with all of those, and um, you know, thinking about Where do we want to go with building the permanent collection? Uh, What opportunities do we have uh, in that regard? And what are future exhibitions that would be important from a groundbreaking standpoint, a pushing the boundaries of Western art, exposing our audience to new and interesting artists they may not be aware of, uh, and balancing that with things that they are familiar with, but adding new scholarship to it or having a, a new twist on an artist's work. Uh, for instance, Ansel Adams, who you brought up, which, as you correctly said, is a slam dunk from a audience number standpoint, but the most recent exhibition we did was called Ansel Adams' Before and After, and out of 110 photographs in the exhibition, only about 15 or 18 were Ansel's work. The rest were people who preceded him and influenced his work. Some of his peers, and uh, a look at what they were doing at the same time he was working, and then those who have come after and been influenced by him, either positive or negatively, in some cases. So it's, uh, it's about putting things in a framework, and uh, all of those um, groups of people you mentioned have a part to play in helping inform us about what we do.
0: Now, you know, the museum focuses primarily, as we talked about the, the introduction to the show, on the work of living artists. And um, I'm wondering, therefore, how does the collaboration with a living artist begin?
1: Well, it can begin in a lot of different ways. Uh, if we're at a uh, museum show uh, within Western Art, there are many uh, museums that have show and sales where they actually bring 50 to 100 artists uh, in and have their work available and for purchase. Uh, so we'll come in contact with uh, folks that way and strike up conversations um, about you know a new direction they may be going in or uh, a theme show they have an idea for. Uh, they may pitch us. Uh, we may go to them uh, if we think they're doing something new, interesting, and different with their work. We may be pitched by one of our collectors who says, uh, Hey, have you ever thought about doing a show uh, with this artist or this group of artists? Uh, we had that happen just recently recently. Uh, We're working on an exhibition of women uh, painters from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. uh, And there's going to be five of them in a group exhibition. And one of our collectors had the idea. She had met all of these ladies uh, when traveling in Jackson Hole and going to galleries and uh, doing some studio visits and said, Hey, I think these five women are doing some really interesting stuff in a unique location. And uh, you ought to look at that. And so we followed that up. And sure enough, we're going to do that show. You know, it's it's as often our idea as it is a gallery owner's uh, suggestion, uh, an artist who contacts us directly, a uh, collector. Uh, they, the ideas can come from anywhere.
0: So I'm curious, you know, if you can tell me what you've experienced with working artists that made it successful for them versus, say, an exhibit that didn't get off the ground because of perhaps an artist's behavior.
1: Um. Yeah, we've we've had
0: relatively good success with
1: that. Um, but certainly, uh, there are artists who shoot themselves in the foot. Normally that's missing deadlines, uh, or not taking it seriously or, um, not understanding the opportunity that's in front of them and, uh, putting the, the appropriate time and resources into, uh, being an active, uh, collaborator or participant. Uh, luckily that's only happened a couple of times, but, uh, you know, I have had artists call and, you know, after we've uh, hammered out an an, an agreement and uh, it might even be a signed agreement and say, uh, I'm not going to have time to give you the 30 original pieces I told you I was going to be able to get. Whether those are created new for the show or borrowed from other collectors doesn't matter too much to us as long as it's good representation of their work over a period of time, varied subject matter and so on. And they say, uh, okay, so I'm going to send you some prints to fill in some of the holes. And we say, no, um, we only show original artwork. That's not going to work. You either need to rethink this or we're going to have to pull the plug. But like I said, that happens very, very rarely. We try to do a pretty good job in the front end of vetting who we're going to work with. Either they have a track record of success previously or we have had a very in-depth conversation about the workflow and what needs to happen on what kind of schedule and often again a gallery uh, may be involved as a partner a co-collaborator or several galleries perhaps where they're helping the artist stay on track and are helping borrow back pieces uh, to flesh out the show and uh, are part of the, uh, the matrix as well
0: now does your work um, as executive director or as curator, because you're you're both um, at Booth, does that involve helping artists with managing or improving their business viability, or is it mostly just project-based or exhibit-based?
1: Uh, I would say the work product is primarily exhibit-based uh, or project-based, but uh, a lot of the informal discussions that happen uh, around those projects or... At these shows I'm alluding to, or when I travel to gallery shows, or when I'm having studio visits, um, because I had background in business before I got in the museum field, people often will lean on me and ask those kinds of questions. You know, I always preface it by saying, uh, you know artists can go to the poorhouse listening to me uh, because i I don't want the <laughs> the burden of them saying, "Well, I did what you said and and it didn't work you know ideas are like you know what and um uh, You know, I I can only give them my perspective and it may or may not work depending, you know, past performance is no indication of future performance, as they say in the stock market. So I I can give them my best advice, but it may not be correct and may not be what they need to do. Um, The one that gets me the most is uh, when I have an artist who is not a full-time artist yet and is thinking about making the jump. And then they come to me and say, should I quit my day job and and do art full time? And I say, if you have to ask me, the answer is obviously no, because the artists I know have to do it. There's just no other option. They have to be making art. And uh, if you have any doubts, uh, I don't know that you're going to be committed enough to have the force of tenacity to get through it and make yourself successful. That's not to say that everybody who tries it and you know is 100% tenacious and goes after it full bore is still going to make it. But if you don't go into it with that from the beginning, I don't see how you're going to.
0: Well, I wonder if you can flesh this out and tell us a little bit about what you see artists doing right in their careers when they're sort of managing their business well versus... Um, where you think there are troubles that, you know, they're making ineffective decisions?
1: Well, I think the hardest thing is is getting going. And, um, you know, you got to pay your dues. And, um, you know, a lot of people want to start out in the middle instead of, you know, at the bottom, unfortunately, where you have to start. And, you know, you may have to go do outdoor arts and craft shows, and you may have to do pop-up shows and do shows in the bank lobby. And, at the senior center or whatever it may be, wherever you can get your art in front of people that might have a few nickels in their pocket and be able to afford a piece, uh, be willing to uh, let people buy on time and develop a collector base. Um, you know, it's one of the things I was surprised to learn about the music business was, you know, bar owners and club owners for bands, you know, at the on the bottom rungs, they expect you to bring your own audience with you. Uh, so when you get in your first or couple of galleries uh, it's not that the gallery is going to necessarily bring people to you to see your work, and they're all of a sudden going to buy it, because the gallery owner says, "Hey, look at this new artist. You have to be doing your own groundwork to build your own collector base and bring some of that with you to your gallery so it can work with their efforts and that you're both working together in those directions to build a collector base, so you can raise your prices and eventually be in a better gallery. I mean, it's the catch-22 I hear from artists all the time is the gallery I can get in, I don't want to be in. I don't think my work's that level. I think I'm better than that gallery. The gallery they want to be in won't have them because they haven't worked their way up through the lower galleries to get to the point to be in that gallery. Uh, I hear gallery owners tell me, you know, of, of 100 portfolios that come in the door, they might add two or three artists in a year to their stable of artists. That's pretty damn depressing. And the ones they wind up adding both are very good, you know, fit the gallery profile. The artists have done their homework and and can say how they see themselves fitting in that gallery. And they've created uh, some of their own market through various means, whether that's shows or the internet or Facebook or whatever they can do to build their own awareness.
0: That's really profound. I mean, I find that authors are having to do the same thing as well that You know, they go to a publisher now and a publisher says, well, where's your audience? Because, you know, if you're good, you should have built up an audience through your blog and some kind of self-published work or some other, you know, people loving your stuff through a variety of of periodicals. But you have to demonstrate that you have a market. If you're coming to me with nobody and hoping that we'll go get the market, that's a a harder sale. Your work's got to be
1: incredibly exceptional
0: to make that jump these days.
1: And uh, the chances of that coming out of nowhere uh, to, a, you know, a significant gallery is just, you know, once a year in a major gallery, if that.
0: Yeah, and it's it's funny because the exception proves the rule. You know, you see all these businesses that start that say, well, Airbnb blew up overnight, Uber blew up overnight, Amazon did. But for every Uber, Amazon, and Airbnb, there are 500,000 businesses that didn't. The The Amazons of the world are the incredibly rare exceptions. And sure, we'd all like to be that. But there are plenty of businesses that do well that aren't that exception. And they have to put in the, uh, the labor and the hard work. Um, and, and for almost all businesses, that will be how it works out. So I think that brings up an issue I really think is on the tip of artists' mental tongues, if you will, is something they, I really think they want to take away from this show, which is, can an artist who wants to work with a museum set out to do that? And if so, do they, what do they do? Send letters, make cold calls, walk in, or do they essentially have to be passive and just wait around to be discovered?
1: Well, I don't think you have to be passive, but you certainly can be too aggressive to the point of being a nuisance, and uh, you've killed any chance of doing anything. And there are very few museums in this country, particularly in, in my field, that do very much with living artists anyway. Um, you know, in, in the more contemporary side of the art world, where there are museums of contemporary art, uh, you know, I think it's much more, much more open field. But just to speak to our situation specifically, you know, certainly uh, would be open to an artist uh, stopping me at a show or at a gallery or even calling me and saying, you know, hey, when you're thinking about future exhibits, uh, you know, uh, I would love to work with you sometime and just kind of throw it out there and, and leave it at that. And, you know, don't hammer me with portfolios and emails and calling me every month and when can I have a show? If you've made it known that, you know, you'd like to be considered. I think that's plenty. And, um, you know, we have shows that we're doing that came about that very way. Um, I had an artist who uh, called and said, hey, I saw you're doing a show for X, Y and Z artists. Uh, that was a really interesting show. Uh, I think it was well curated and uh, liked the works that were in it. Uh, I think uh, a show of me and these two other artists that he named that are compatible and would be an equally interesting show. Let me know what you think about that. And we're going to wind up doing that show. So there's a way to do it um, you know, somewhat subtly uh, and there's a way to do it being a nuisance.
0: It sounds like that it's sort of like you need to have somewhat of a sophisticated pitch or proposal, you can't just go uh, "said I'd like to be in your museum. Would you put me in a museum? Please put me in your museum. You can't, you can't be that person. But you, it sounds like the person you, the artist you described said, we have an idea for something. And we think this would be good for the museum and would work for your audience. And uh, it would be an opportunity to collaborate. And here's the idea. And you could have said no to the idea, but that's, it's a lot more interesting even to say no to an idea um, that has sort of a a business grade proposal behind it than an idea that um, is just hey I want to I want to be in your museum. <laughs> well, it could still be you know
1: hey I, I I just would like to be included in the temporary exhibition sometime that's fine as well. It doesn't have to be a fully baked idea. You're just letting us know that you know hey I'd like to be considered. And, and really, I have to separate it into two different things. One is being in the permanent collection, which may involve a purchase. Um, more often, it's a donation just because we have limited acquisition funds. Or it's getting one of the artist's patrons to donate a work they've already purchased or to purchase it directly from the artist and then donate it to the museum to get into the permanent collection. And you know that can be a career booster in and of itself, um, as much as an exhibition possibly. Uh, to be able to put that on your resume and, you know, make our audience aware that we have uh, deemed them worthy of being in the permanent collection and now have a work in the permanent collection. Hopefully it's going to hang at some point. We try to get new acquisitions out and, and keep them out for a while when we first get them and to, uh, you know, let the world know they're now part of the permanent collection. So that's, that's kind of one side Uh, on the exhibition side. You know, there's only so many exhibitions a year. Um, You know, we're doing, um, eight or nine, which is a lot uh, compared to most museums. But some of those are theme shows. Some of those are theme shows that involve deceased artists and not living artists or only one-person shows. And uh, so there's just not that many slots in a given year, and so we have to be very judicious about it. Uh, And generally we're looking for artists who are doing something new, something with a twist, something that's not been you know, done to death. You know, many of the contemporary style artists in our collection look at the artists who are doing very traditional work and say, you know, why are you trying to out-Russell and Remington, Remington, and Russell? That's been done. Uh, If you think you're going to out-Remington and Russell them, you're starting out on a hole. and why would you put yourself in that position? What is it that you have to say? What is it you have to uh, depict with your artwork the the emotional quality of it, the message behind it, if there is one, that is setting you apart from everybody else in the field. And those are the important things to focus on.
0: i got to dig into this more because it's very interesting. You've got a collection of a variety of different types of demographics and type, actual styles of art under the rubric of Western art. And I guess I'm curious whether we're talking about a globalized, art market, or rather, you know, what, what is the, the distinction between the globalized art market versus exclusively the niche market for Western art? And I ask this because I, I wonder whether artists um, are pigeonholing themselves by um, pursuing Western art as a, a track. Whether that sort of limit puts a ceiling on their future growth and profitability, or whether it's an exploding market for Western art, and it's precisely because they they choose a niche like that um, that there are opportunities to uh, to explode with it.
1: It can cut both ways, for sure. Uh, you know the namesake of this uh, program, essentially, Clark Hewlings, was an American artist who did European street scenes, uh, American Western things, uh, South American material, uh, working people all over the world. Yet he made his fame winning the biggest award in Western art, which was the very first pre to West uh, given by the museum in Oklahoma city. And he became pigeonholed somewhat as a Western artist and chafed under that definition Uh, particularly later in his career, and sought to separate himself from the Western art market and be known as a general American artist uh, with somewhat limited success. Yet the money within the Western art market flowed to him uh, pretty regularly. And within that niche, uh, he sold well. Now, would he have sold more and higher prices if he had not been under that? I'm not so sure. Um, So Today, there are artists who specifically seek to identify themselves with the Western art market, uh, with the Western art shows at the museums and galleries and so on, because it is a somewhat growing market, although our collecting, collector base is aging at an alarming rate and not necessarily being replaced by younger collectors, uh, at least not at the rate
0: they're leaving.
1: But it still is a thriving market uh, with you know, a significant number of publications and galleries and museums that are active in acquisitions and putting on shows and sales and those kinds of things. But you can risk getting pigeonholed and you can risk getting pigeonholed even within Western art. You know There are certain artists that are known for a specific subject, say the Grand Canyon, and that's what the collectors want is a Grand Canyon painting by that artist. If they paint somewhere else, some other park, um, that's great, but that's not what I want. I want the Grand Canyon by that artist, which was what Clark Hewlings won the uh, very first pre-to-west with, was a Grand Canyon painting. And so, um, you know, as I said, it can cut both ways. Uh, It can be positive, it can be negative, and um, it's tough to navigate.
0: Well, I, I think that's in a lot of people's mind is, you know, there are a lot of decisions you've sort of brought up. Should I quit my, my day job? Um, how If I want to be in museums, how do, I, how do I pursue that? Should I develop an idea? Should I wait passively? You know, Should I paint within the tradition or should I break out and express my own unique style? And should I um, pigeonhole myself, risk that um, either as a niche or within a niche? Uh, or, or try to go for a bigger market. These are all the kinds of struggles, I think, though, that, um, that any business would make.
1: Well, and, and I think, um, you know, having a business-minded person as a friend, confidant, uh, somebody you can lean on, or, or even two or three people like that. Uh, you know, one very successful Western artist I know has a committee, and he has a lawyer and a doctor and an accountant and a, a banker friend who form his business committee, and whenever he has business decisions, he convenes a meeting of his business committee, and they talk about it from all aspects of the business world. And he compensates them by inviting them to his shows, or giving them a small painting as a Christmas gift, or you know, doing something nice for them, you know, throughout the year, to thank them for their sage counsel. Um, you know the other great thing that a lot of artists have going for them is a business minded organized spouse uh, or a very talented assistant who may be paid uh, and you know obviously you got to get to the point where you're generating enough income to be able to afford to either have your spouse dedicated to being you know your business manager, so to speak, or a paid assistant. but as soon as you can get there get there because it's going to pay dividends immediately and help you go next
0: level. Oh, fascinating. So let me ask you this. What um, catches the eyes of curators specifically? I mean, obviously, you know, we can use words like the art has to be good. Um, but are there more concrete, more specific things within the, the realm of good um, that artists can focus on if they if they want to have museum shows?
1: Well, good is a relative term, obviously, and, uh, you know, I tongue-in-cheek joke with my artist friends, uh, particularly when their art doesn't sell, and I say, well, you know, buck up the uh, the top five reasons why a piece of art sells, whether it's any good or not, it's about three and a half down the list in the top five, because people buy art for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, they more often buy art because it reminds them of a place, time, or person. Uh, that's important to them. Uh, that triggers an emotional response and, and creates it to be something they want to live with. Uh, it may be reputation, uh, it may be the signature, uh, it may be the personal relationship they have between the collector and the artist. And none of that takes into the quality of the art itself, which, you know, is good and bad depending on where you are on the on that scale. The other uh, part of that is that. You want to do something a little different. I mean, if your art looks like whoever's hot in the market right now and you're selling at a third the price, you know, that you might ride that for a little while that, you know, hey, I really want artist A's work, but I can't afford it. Oh, here's artist C who's doing something really similar, but is affordable. You know, I don't know how far that's going to get you. And uh, it's certainly not going to be important. And it's not going to be uh, attractive to the museum if that's your ultimate goal. Uh, you know, we're going to go after artist A and not look at artist C, who uh, is a derivative. You know, that's that's just not uh, the way things work. So, we're looking for technical quality. We're looking for uh, subjects that may not have been done or done in a uh, comprehensive way to help uh, flesh out the collection. Uh, we're looking for interesting takes. Uh, We're looking for things that uh, don't already exist in the collection and things that help better tell the story of the West, Western art, uh, and are moving the field forward uh, in whatever direction that might be that the artist is trying to take it.
0: Okay, so um, as we wind down the show, I have a micro-segment, the final segment of the show, which is more about collecting, and I just have three questions uh, about uh, collecting art. So the first one is, um, do you work directly, or if you do, how do you work directly with um, collectors?
1: We work every day directly with collectors. Um, We take it as part of our mission, which I didn't get too much into at the beginning of the show. But we see part of our role is working with those existing collectors who thought they were the only crazy people in the South to be emboldened to know that there are other people in the South collecting Western art, that they shouldn't feel apprehensive about it, um, that they should use the resources of the museum, the resources of getting to know other collectors in the South, the resources of the artists and gallery owners we can introduce them to that are resources to buy more and better art. And in the long run, that's going to benefit everybody. The collector is going to have a nicer piece of art on their wall that they can feel proud of and know that they're um, justified um, in their decisions and have done their due diligence in what they've decided to put on their walls. From an objective standpoint, that you still have to have the subjective. And um, what I coach all of our collectors on is to understand the Seth Hopkins Pink Fuzzy Slippers test which is when you're padding around on Sunday morning with a cup of coffee in the New York Times in your hand and you got your pink fuzzy slippers on, when you spy a piece of art you own out of the corner of your eye, you get this slow, silly grin that creeps over your face because you get to live with that piece of art. You're the steward of it for this generation. In uh, the ultimate situation, you've met the artist, you know the artist, and you know that they're supporting their livelihood. And you're just excited that that's in your house. And that is the only reason to buy art is to have that response.
0: Yeah, I certainly have some art that passes the test though. I can't see myself. I might, uh, bring my art out of the closet if I still lived in the South, but I don't think I'd wear the fuzzy pink slippers cause it just doesn't match my natural skin tone. <laughs> but I, I like the analogy. That's fantastic.
1: So the, um, The thing we tell all the gallery uh, folks is, um, you know, you should help us find these collectors and you should help us network with them, with the other existing collectors in our group, because the end result is they buy more and better art. Ninety-eight percent of the time, the folks who've gotten involved in the museum and our programming and our travel trips and collecting seminars and classes on collecting and meeting artists and going to shows, uh, they buy more and better art. That's good for the artists, it's good for all the museums in the field. It's good for the soul of the collector. It's obviously good for the living artist and supports their livelihood. So we see that as as an important part of our mission and and most of the museums in our field don't necessarily see that as their role, but because of our geographic location, uh, we see an opportunity to grow the size of the pie for Western art in the south, not have people cutting it into smaller and smaller pieces by fighting over the same size pie. We can grow the tent. We can grow the pie. We can make the market bigger so that more artists can make a living.
0: Yeah, I like the the theme of collectors networking together and and meeting other collectors. Uh, Maybe you can just speak for a moment about the benefit of collecting living artists uh, because you emphasized that before, it was part of your pink fuzzy slippers test that um, knowing that you're supporting that artist's livelihood. But is there more to it than that, than just sort of uh, financial philanthropy?
1: Well, uh, that that's kind of an outgrowth of I think what is a natural phenomenon, which is particularly in Western art. And I'll I'll be very um, selfish in saying this that uh, I think the greatest people in this country make and collect Western art. In 17 years of being in this field and being around the top artists, the top collectors, on down to the person who might spend $200 on a small painting uh, at a show, they by and large are incredibly nice, uh, humble people. And in 17 years, I've met five jerks. Now, I don't know if anybody out there in the audience can say in their field, in meeting thousands of people over that kind of period of time they've met less than five jerks because I just don't believe it and it's a cool business um, you know art is the only business I know where the customer often buys dinner if the collectors and the artists go out to dinner the collectors will grab the check first because they want to support what the artists are doing so that's that philanthropy side but the other part of it is the emotional connection that you have to the person themselves and when you stand in front of a painting and the artist tells you about it, why they did it, what they were thinking at the time, what research they might have done, the lengths that they went to to travel or to locate models or locate um, something that's in the painting or their thought process at the time, it gives you such insight that you can't
0: have if you're collecting old masters or deceased artists' work. So, Seth, where is the Booth Museum going from here?
1: Well, we're going to continue to work with living artists. We're going to continue to collect living artists. Uh, People say, are you going to get rid of the stuff when the artists, when they die? No, we're not going to do that. Uh, We're going to rotate some of that out, and uh, it's going to continue to fill the depth of the collection. But we want to keep a strong emphasis on living artists. Uh, We have a very aggressive exhibition program, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, The bulk of that time and space is going to go to living artists, uh, particularly in our photography and our uh, focus gallery where we do one to four person shows. And uh, we want to continue to build the best collection of living and contemporary Western art in the country and uh, to continue to offer thought provoking and groundbreaking exhibitions and continue working with the artists and collectors to grow the field. As I said, the collectors are aging out in our field. Many of them were influenced by Western movies and Western television, and we're getting to where the tipping point is uh, people, you know, 50 and younger don't have that experience. And so how are they going to come to Western art? How are they going to learn about it? How are they going to be enthralled by it? And we've got to find new and better ways to uh, continue to introduce them to those folks as they come into the age bracket of having the money and the time to be interested in art and become collectors, what's going
0: to attract them to our field. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. For more information on the Booth Western Art Museum, visit boothmuseum.org. That's boothmuseum.org. Dot org. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit ClarkHewlingsFund.org. And to sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit ClarkHewlingsFund.org donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Seth. It's been really great having you.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.